from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for, the, for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not in, excuse me, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For, eat. for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have the houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, my name's Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here. It's seriously an honor to be here to worship with you. Um, And I want to start by talking about something. I don't know if you've noticed this. It it might be something that's more in sort of pastorly circles, uh, but maybe not. Um, It seems to me that the idea of liturgy, the liturgical uh, within churches is kind of on an upswing right now, especially amongst people who grew up in kind of like low church, Protestant environments like I did and probably like many of you did. Um, there's, there's a desire to kind of embrace uh, more formal practice and uh, kind of, yeah, ritual, ritual, if you will. And I think that springs from, at least talking with people and even observing this impulse in myself, I think it springs from a number of places. One, I think it comes from a desire for order in a chaotic world. The world's pretty chaotic, right? It's pretty chaotic. It's pretty, the the constant change in the ways in which fundamental ideas and institutions can be upended and change, it can be so wild. Internet is such a chaotic and destabilizing presence in our lives and so on and so forth. so liturgy can be a way of, of finding order. Liturgy is often very, uh, provides a sense of orderliness that we, we long for. It can also be prompted by a desire for something ancient and timeless in what feels like a very disposable world. 
We live in a world that's kind of like pop culture. Everyone's 15 minutes of fame. Things just come and go. Trends come and go. You know, basic understandings of human nature come and go radically quickly. And liturgy can speak to a desire for something ancient. Like, is there anything in this world that actually has lasted more than the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 500 years? Yes, there are. There are those things. Liturgy, some particular liturgies are some of those. It can also be prompted by a desire for something dignified in an entertainment-saturated world. You know, so much of our culture is driven by pop culture, and I love pop culture as much as the next person, but we can all recognize how vacuous so much of it is, how, again, disposable so much of it is. Um, And there's a desire often for something dignified, And, and, and when you see the kind of flippancy of pop culture begin to integrate its way into the church and how the church even worships together, there can be this real sense of like, man, I just, I want something more than what seems to be just like an entertainment-focused expression of Christianity. I want something dignified. There are probably other reasons as well, but I think those are three that kind of capture something important about what's going on in this. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you heard all that and you're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Maybe you identify with the words of Ray Van Nesty here. Listen to these. He says, we have bought, he's kind of speaking from people who are skeptical of it, we've bought into our culture's lie that ritual is bad. We typically do not have the ability to see the value and beauty of traditional practices. Instead, we tend to think that spontaneity and change are always best. But we should examine critically this assumption. Why do we assume that having a regular pattern to our worship is necessarily bad and that changing things up is necessarily good? Probably part of the reason is that generations before us failed to reflect on what they practiced and so failed to teach us why we did what we did. As a result, we may have seen empty tradition and ritual. However, we must not let the bad example turn us away from the real thing. As we search the scripture, we find that God is pleased with tradition and ritual properly done. God, or Paul, warns us not to let man-made traditions obscure scripture, but scripture itself gives us some ritual, particularly baptism and communion. We must seek to recover the value of community traditions, things done regularly with rich meaning. So what is liturgy? Use that word a few times now. Liturgy literally means the work of the people in response to God, but, but in common use and maybe more the way it's more colloquially used, you can use it almost interchangeably with habit, uh, with traditions, or with rituals. Or we might say liturgy is simply the forms of religious or spiritual activity that we use. And, you know, we could talk about how liturgical a church is across a number of different acts, acts what's the plural of axis? Axes. Axes. Who yelled that so boldly? (laughs) Jack? Well well done. Well done. Yeah, multiple axes. So you could think of it in terms of are the practices more ancient, traditional, versus more modern, contemporary? Or are the practices more formal or more informal? Or are the practices highly structured or more spontaneous? Or are the practices seemingly reverent or irreverent? Or... Are the practices associated with high church traditions or low church traditions? At the end of the day, I think this is really helpful. It's best to realize that however a practice falls along each of those axes, (laughs) each of those spectrums, each one is still a liturgy. 
Um, and every type of church then has a liturgy, a set of habits, routines, orders, and practices that it commits itself to because it thinks they're important and that then have a shaping effect on us together as we gather. Um, James K.A. Smith writes in his book, You Are What You Love, that liturgy, as far as I'm using the word, is a shorthand term for those rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we're for. They carry within them a kind of ultimate orientation. To return to our metaphor above, think of these liturgies as calibration technologies. They bend the needle of our hearts. Um, heard a number of writers speaking about these things that talk about desire in relationship to habit. And see if this rings true for you. They would argue that desires form habits. So the things that you love, the things that you want, the things that you're desirous of, they form habits. You will begin to integrate repeated habits into your life in pursuit of those desires. But as you build those habits, those habits will then reinforce those desires. I think about a common one. I've heard this you know, numerous, uh, actually good on me. I don't have my phone in my pocket. That's good. Imagine I had my phone in my pocket. Numerous authors have talked about this. Um, and this has a, been a problem for me. I'm trying to, I'm actively like working on right now, but a little just practical, non-religious, or so we think, liturgy of checking your phone first thing in the morning. So I don't have a dedicated alarm clock. I just have my phone plugged in next to my bed and my, yeah, I set my alarm before, you know, in the evening. I wake up to my phone and my temptation and probably how I've lived most of my adult life is, you know, the alarm goes off. I kind of stumble through the dark next to my bed and find it. And with my bleary eyes, I kind of open it, and it's too bright, but I'm so drawn to it, I still want to look at it anyway. I open it, and I'm like, okay, turn off the alarm, and then what? Well, there's stuff to check, right? <laughs> there's important stuff. There's, like, important stuff I got to get to. And so uh, the desire is probably, oh, I want to, you know, make sure that there's no nothing blew up on my church email overnight. There's not some crisis I need to respond to. Or uh, what else, you know? I like to check my, my pop culture websites, what new albums are out or whatever. I like to check the news, see if there's some new global tragedy, horrifically, that we need to be aware of and cognizant of. Whatever it is, there's all kinds of different cylinders firing. But the result is the same. I wake up, and the fir my first thought is, I need to check. I need to see what's going on, on here, whatever the realm is that, I'm, that catches my attention the first thing. And so there's a desire. I want to know what's going on. There's a habit that's forming. First thing I do is reach for this thing, and it fills the first thoughts of my day. And I get, you know, especially, you know, certain things are wired, especially social media, wired to give you a little dopamine hit as you get likes and retweets or whatever else. All of that's into play, and the result is I'm building a habit. You know what happens the next day? I want to reach for my phone. And then you know what happens the next day? I want to reach for my phone. And you know what happens the next day? I reach for my phone. Each day that we give ourselves over to these rituals, these liturgies, the behavior reinforces the desire. So desires form habits, and habits reinforce desires. It seems to be the way of the world, and it's a vicious cycle. And here's the point. It can be a process, a cycle, for good in your life or for ill. There can be life-giving, soul-building love, like in the deepest, most beautiful, most... At, directed at the right object's purest way, uh, forming thing, or it can be malforming you towards a desire and a love and a, you know, a pursuit of things that are corrosive to your soul and your spirit. It can, go, it can be good or bad. And so it's obvious it's not just churches have liturgies. Everyone has a set of personal habits 
and routines that you've either stumbled into or you've chosen proactively. That's always better if you've chosen them. At least you've made a decision. Listen to Tish Harrison Warren on this. She says, whoever we are, whatever we believe, wherever we live, and whatever our consumer preferences may be, we spend our days doing things. We live in routines formed by habits and practices. Uh, James K.A. Smith, following Augustine, argues that to be an alternative people is to be formed differently, to take up practices and habits that aim our love and desire towards God. We don't wake up daily and form a way of being in the world from scratch, and we don't think our way through every action of our day. We move in patterns that we've set over time, day by day. These habits and practices shape our lives, our desires, and ultimately who we are and what we worship. I think she's right. I think she's right. So our habits, our rituals, our liturgies, if you will, are acts of worship that are meant to reinforce our connection with and love for the one that we worship. Hopefully, it's the God of the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, most clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. So today, we're continuing our short series. This is the second to last one, The Praises of His People, with a consideration of the role of liturgy and habit in our worshiping lives. So we're going to zoom in on one like super important liturgical practice prescribed by the Bible, the Lord's Supper or Communion, one that we practice here basically every week, and hopefully let it inform our approach on some level to all of our sort of liturgical uh, experiences as a church. So that's the game plan. Um, pray with me. Father, this is uh, probably a exciting conversation to some of us in the room, a, a really boring or alienating one to others in the room. Uh, but our, our ask, Lord, is that to the extent that, um, that this reflects your heart and your truth, your word, uh, that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts. Lord, it seems inescapable that we are all creatures of habit and thus creatures of, of liturgy. And we want to be the kind of people, Lord, who, who direct our habits uh, towards you in worship. Lord, I know for some of us, we are skeptical of routine and ritual and re repetition, Lord, that we're afraid that it empties things of meaning. I pray that, Lord, you would help each of us who are in that place to see the beauty uh, of committed, persistent pursuit of you, even in repetitious ways. Lord, for some of us, we've, we've, we've been in churches that have been hyper-ritualistic, Lord, and that's devolved into a legalism, Lord. We pray that you would help us, again, separate the the baby from the bathwater there, Lord. Um, for some of us are just are longing for better habits and ritual and routine, liturgy, Lord, but we don't know how to get there and, and, and how to do it the right way, how, the way, how to do it the way that your word prescribes, Lord. So for each of us, wherever we're at, help us. Help us. May, may, may this morning just be one helpful step towards living into this the way you've intended, the way you've designed us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can put up our, the definition of worship we've been, we've been working with uh, for a few weeks now. We've, we, we've come to define worship here as worship, worship is the proper, sincere, and joyful whole person and all of life response to the gloriously beautiful nature and activity of the triune God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, 
We began with a look at who God is, why he's worthy of praise. Then we talked about Jesus' central defining teaching about worship in the New Testament in John chapter 4, where he said worship will no longer be confined to a particular time and a particular place through even a particular set of rituals uh, at the temple system. But now worship is going to be anywhere in spirit and in truth. And that casts a vision for us that, that as us, as the temples of the Holy Spirit, we now get to be a people who can engage properly in worship in whatever it is that we're doing as long as our hearts are tuned to the Lord, we're standing in obedience to him, so on and so forth. Uh, it's not that all of life is always worship. It plainly isn't, at least if your life looks anything like mine. But it's that all of life could potentially be the more we remain tethered to him, the more we abide in him, the closer we remain to him. He wants all of us, not just the time you're here on Sunday morning or in community group or whenever you're reading your Bible, those are all part of worship, but also in the mundane, the, the average, the day-to-day, when you're at your job, when you're with your family, when you're, you know, building a fence, whatever it is, there is a way to worship and honor and glorify God because you're his temple, the temple of his spirit. So then we talked about, okay, all of that stated, what about music? And songs, which is kind of what most of us just jump to when we start thinking about worship. And so we talked about the place of music as a way to stir up the whole person towards these moments of just exclamation of the praises of God together in community and all the benefits and blessings of that. Last week, we talked about the Bible's connection between feasting, joyful celebration, and worship, and how that kind of colors, you know, all of our worshiping life. And now today, we talk about habit, habit which has got to be the least sort of sexy of all of these, you know? We start talking about habits and routines. We're like, oh, isn't that just dry and dead and cold? And we're going to say no. We're going to say no. Um, So first, a first question here is, does the Bible command the adoption of liturgies or habits as an important part of spiritual formation? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. I mean, just a quick glance, as we've already mentioned, that the temple system reveals this intensely formal and complex, rigorous set of religious practices for relating to God under the Old Covenant. But you might say, Cameron, you just spent like a whole sermon a few weeks ago talking about how we're no longer beholden to that temple system. We're no longer under the Old Covenant. Jesus has brought the New Covenant, etc., etc. And the answer to that, of course, is yes, you're right. We're under a New Covenant. So what about us? Does it still apply? Again, the answer is yes. And we could look at countless places to make this point, but I want to consider the passage that Sarah read for us, uh, which is one of the New Testament's teachings uh, on the practice of the Lord's Supper or communion as our entry point. And so you can put the next slide up. This whole passage, and this is the first part of it, this whole passage um, assumes that believers will practice the Lord's Supper. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, Uh, They are a mess. If you read that book, they're like the most controversial, messed up, like so many wrong practices going on, so many just like messed up things in their midst. And Paul's just writing this like exhausted letter of love, but correction. And so he gets to this point where he's like, okay, you know, he has things to commend them for, but he has this litany of things that he's like, guys, you got to get it together. And one of those has to do with how they're practicing communion or the Lord's Supper. But his assumption is that they are practicing it. His assumption is that they are practicing it. Paul then recites the words of Jesus. I think it's on the next slide. Just skip ahead to that real quick. 
he, he jumps into like what he's received from the Lord, verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he's saying, this isn't my stuff. This goes back to Jesus, and this formulation is very similar to what we find in the Gospels as well. That the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, what did he do? He took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. You guys hear this every week from me, don't you? And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll pause there. So that's, that's his teaching about Jesus. He's going to go and apply it again in the rest of the passage. So that kind of is the middle of this whole section. He's talking about his problems before and after. But he says, just remember what Jesus taught us about this and the example he left us, the command he gave us. So once again, Jesus himself, the Lord of grace, the giver of the Spirit, left us a liturgical practice, didn't he, that we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. Communion is one of like the universally agreed upon primary sacraments or ordinances of the local church alongside baptism. Baptism is meant to be a, a liturgical practice that we, we practice occasionally as we have people that come to faith and need to get baptized. We do it here, right there. If you didn't know, that big table right there is a baptismal. Actually, it's like more like a hot tub. Um, if you ever want to just come up and have a hot tub party, a little feast in there, let me know. We'll turn on the water for you. Sacrilegious? I don't, I don't know. I feel like that's against the spirit of what I'm saying here. Um, <laughs> so we do baptisms, and baptisms are a one-time entry into, they're, they're, they're this, this sacramental entry into the life of the church. It's a public way of declaring your faith in Jesus and an identification with him in his burial and in his resurrection. That his burial and his resurrection get applied to you. You're making a public declaration that you believe this and that you've received this for yourself. And also, like, coming out of that water is this picture of being given the new life, new life with the family of God here. So it's incredibly important. It's a liturgical practice. And then there's communion, or the Lord's Supper. So what is it? It's a liturgy. It is a habit infused with spiritual significance and power. It is a meal with a particular meaning and even a formula that is meant to be regularly enjoyed by the community of people together in remembrance of Jesus' death and in anticipation of his return. So, is there a place for liturgy in the New Covenant Christian's life? Yes, yes, absolutely. And here's one powerful example. But there's an important thing to note here. We'll go back to the first slide. It's that liturgy can be emptied of its power. And you know that. If you're skeptical of all this, this is probably why. Because as we read earlier, that quote put the finger on it. Like, it is so easy for habit and routine to become what? It's routine. I just do it. It has no power. It has no meaning to me. I don't really care. Whatever. Liturgy can be emptied of its power. I want to read these verses here. He says, this is how this passage starts. He says, in the following instruction... I do not commend you, <laughs> because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Four, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. So they're divided. 
They're divided. Supposed to be unified, but they're divided. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. But when you come together, listen to this, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So ostensibly, they're gathering, and part of their gathering is, it appears to be a, a, a meal, like a whole meal, of which part of is the designation of the bread and the wine, you know, in, in accordance with what Jesus has taught. And he says, look, you're coming together and you're doing the form. You're doing the form, but this ain't the Lord's Supper. You hear the force of that. Like, you're, yeah, you, you think you're doing the Lord's Supper, but this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For an eating, why? For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Sarah, you nailed that. What? <laughs> do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's pretty worked up here. Here's the problem, if we could put it in our own words. They think they are practicing the Lord's Supper or communion, but they have missed its character and its purpose. Specifically, they have let it become a practice where the rich, evidently, the rich are feasting to the point of excess, and the poor are being left out and humiliated. It was evidently practiced as part of a larger meal within a home, as we said. Leon Morris describes this well. He says, the poor would have to finish their work before they could come. And slaves would find it particularly difficult to be on time. And remember, the church, the church is a place where all these social boundaries, racial, ethnic, class, financial, economic, they get transcended. The church is where Jesus is building one new humanity out of anyone who will come and bend the knee to King Jesus. That's important. But the poor are going to have a hard time getting there. Slaves are going to have a hard time getting there on time. But the rich they get there whenever they want, can't they? So the rich would come, and they ate and drank in their cliques, each having his own dinner, and the food, the bread, was gone before the poor even got there, presumably. So one person, the poor, Paul names them, the poor are being left out. They're, le they're coming to this meal hungry, or leaving it hungry, while, while the rich are eating and drinking everything to the point, some of them even getting drunk off of the communion wine. So he says, there was a sharp contrast between the hungry poor lacking even necessary food and the drunken rich. There was no real sharing, no genuinely common meal. So Paul is saying, yeah, sure, you're, you're, you're gathering to do the, the practice, you're doing the thing, but, but what's actually happening when you get there is showing you don't understand this at all. This is of no spiritual benefit to you. This isn't communicating the unity that we have in Christ. This isn't pointing us to our loving Savior who has sacrificed everything for everyone and building this family of brothers and sisters who share the same burdens and take care of one another. No, no, no. You're communicating the opposite when you do this. You've taken a ritual and you've made it the exact opposite of what I intended. And what is intended by communion? Well, some of the, some of the language we see across the New Testament is that it's a participation in Jesus' body and blood. Therefore, restating our faith by which we appropriate his death and resurrection on our behalf. It's an act of faith by which we appropriate his death and resurrection on our behalf. But it's also a proclamation. There's something about this proclaiming his death. 
looking backwards, and in this passage it says, until he returns, which looks forward. So it's an act that situates us between what's happened previously, Jesus died, and what's coming in the future. Jesus is returning, and the big feast that we talked about last week that's coming. It's a proclamation of these things. It's also a remembrance, another biblical word. A remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance of his death via a powerful physical symbol. Taking his symbols of his body and his blood into ourselves for nourishment. Nourishing you with his body and his blood. Don't let the, the power of that image skip you by. It's also the reception of his body and blood. He says, this is my body and this is my blood, and this is perhaps the most controversial and mysterious aspect of Jesus' words. In what sense is this his body and this his blood? Blood has been shed over that question. War, like it, 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 it's like, you know, whole divisions of the church have been birthed over that. Um, and it's soaked in mystery. But there is some sense that Jesus means what he says when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, receive it. And so, in addition to those things, it is meant to be a unifying experience for a community of believers across their various differences, which proclaims the new humanity that Jesus is assembling. When we partake of this liturgical practice, we are doing and having done to us all of these things. It is meant to be a powerfully formative act of worship. This, this is why the Corinthians' destruction of it was so terrible. They took, one of, they took the like, central uniting practice of the early church and they just made it meaningless. They robbed it of its power. They robbed it of its significance. They practiced it in a way that was the exact opposite of what it was meant to communicate. So I think there, there are at least three ways we can come to our liturgies, our rituals, our habits as a church, including communion, but apply it to any of them, how we sing together, when we do baptisms, when we uh, listen to the reading of Scripture, the public teaching of the Scripture, when we do any of this stuff. There's three, things you can, three ways you can come to them. One is you can come eagerly expectant for connection with God. You can come saying like, oh, my heart is stirred. I'm ready to encounter all that Christ has for me in the Lord's Supper. Like, I am excited to commune with him through this. I'm excited to receive him, to remember, to proclaim all these things. Like, you're just fired up and ready. That's good. That's good. The second, you can come committed despite having a lack of passion for it. You can come committed despite having a lack of passion for it. And what I mean is you can say, you know what? I know this is important. Jesus commanded it. But I cannot say that I'm like fired up for this. I cannot say my heart is beating for this. I cannot say that there's much in me right now other than just the basic act of obedience. What would we say about that? Still good, actually. That's still good. You know, that, that's part of this. It's that these habits, as habits, are things that we come to even when, even when it feels dry, even when it feels dark. You're still receiving something. You're still receiving power. You're still receiving uh, an opportunity for communion with God through it. Even very, very practically, one of my favorite stories, uh, <laughs> uh, Scott and Sarah Whitley <laughs> sent me a text a few months ago. And they, they, it was a video of their little, how old is Russell? Two and a half? So it was a video of Russell 
uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer, two and a half year old. And they just go, they just, the text said something like, hey, you know, Russell's been in some of our gatherings and watched them online with us as well, you know, when they've been at home. Uh, our two and a half year old can recite the Lord's Prayer from memory. And we were just, I was just like, holy smokes. That's it, friends. Like, that's it. We choose to repeat and to come again and again and again to these practices because even when we're like, feel kind of dead and dry or whatever, we are still being reminded. These things are still being lodged deep within us. That's why we choose the things we choose to keep repeating and keep coming after and to do again and again and again and again as a gathered community here and as individuals out living our lives. Commitment, despite a lack of passion, is still good. That might be most of your days sometimes, and that is okay. But there's a third way we can approach these liturgies, and that's with misunderstanding or misusing them. If we come to them violating their proper spirit, we come to them in a way that's counter, counter-cultural to what they're intended for, as, in, as is this example. Or, this, this one is common, when we approach them as works to gain God's approval. You know? It's our little token that we put in the slot machine hoping God will give. Yeah, if I go and I take the Lord's Supper, I pray or I read my Bible, whatever it is, I sing loudly enough or I raise my hands, and whatever it is, then God will be happy with me. Then God will love me. Then I'll get that thing that I really want or whatever. That's bad. (laughs) That's not the one we want. It's so easy for ritual to become something by which we assume we are going to gain God's approval, and that is not how it works, friends. That is not the gospel. The gospel is of sheer grace. Our activity is a response to the love and the grace that he has already shown and given. It is not how we earn it. Amen? So yes, these things can be abused, they can be misunderstood, they can be misused. Or we can come with eager expectation or simply committed on some days. You know what? This is hard, but I think there's something here for me that God has for me nonetheless, so I'm going to show up, and I'm going to step into this liturgy. So one other point, another point is that liturgies are about communing with God. Hope that's obvious by now. But I want to read, you can go to the next slide. I'll read this whole passage again. Well, I'll, I'll, skip, I'll skip Jesus' words. We, we don't need to hear Jesus' words again. <laughs> no, but we're, we're short on time. So Paul recounts Jesus, we already read it, Jesus is teaching, and he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is wild. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, and by eating there he means this whole meal of which the Lord's Supper is a part, Wait for one another. So he comes right back to the same idea. So with this whole passage about. When you do this, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, like if you're just here just to get full, like just eat at home. If you can eat at home, eat at home. So that when you come together for this, 
it won't be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. <laughs> he's just kind of, exa- he's like, all right, there's more stuff, but we'll, I'll just talk to you about it in person. <laughs> so, the Lord's Supper, this says, must be done in a worthy manner, and this worthy manner is all about how we are properly communing with God and with neighbor, reminiscent of, guess what, his great command, love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, when, to approach the Lord's Supper, to do it in a worthy manner, means first discerning the body. What does he mean by that? We have to discern the body. Well, probably, probably it's both a recognition of the way, because these are right here in the context. In Jesus' words, a recognition of the way in which Jesus is present in the communion elements. So this speaks of both a knowledge of what, of what we're doing, what we're proclaiming, what the, what the images mean when we take communion, but also this is an implicit you know, qualification that this is for believers. This isn't just something that we come up to, like, I don't know what this is, but I'm, you know, I'm going to participate in this. That's why most weeks we try to make that reminder to you. Hey, if you're here and you're not a believer, we're so glad you're here. But this, this is for those who have trusted in Jesus, and who, who have discerned the body of Jesus in these elements and are ready to step into the weight of what that means. Um, and if that's not you, we'd love for that to be you. You know, and today could be your first day, but, but, uh, but that is a requirement. So a recognition of the spiritual significance, the faith that's required to have that recognition of the spiritual significance of this, but I also think, as a lot of scholars think here, it's probably a, almost like a double entendre. Also discerning the way, because what the, the body of Christ is what? The body is what? It's in the bread. It's also out here, isn't it? The body of Christ. And the central issue that Paul is ticked off about is how they are not aware of their brothers and sisters. They are doing this practice in a way it's like, yeah, I get my fill but I don't care what is going on with the body of Christ around me. So probably, probably Paul has in mind both. The recognition of the way Jesus is present in the communion elements and the way in which Jesus is present within one's sisters and brothers here when we're gathered. To neglect either is to miss the spirit of what this is. So that. There's also this piece of self-examination and judgment that he talks about. So he says to make sure, I think this implies we need to make sure first that we've trusted Christ, that's foundational again, but also that we're showing the kind of neighbor love and consideration that he demands to those in his family. If the whole issue that Paul is challenging is that they are not waiting for one another, they're, they're doing this in a way that's excluding one another, then the self-examination, at least in first part, has to be about how we are relating to one another. Check yourself. Check yourself. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to confess, confess. If you need to stop the way you're doing it, stop the way you're doing it. Examine yourself. Judge yourself, he says. And do that. And he goes on to say, like, and if you do that with the Lord, like, what's the Lord's judgment for? For believers, he says, look, when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. That's actually for our growth, for our betterment so that we may not be condemned. When you're a believer, the Lord's judgment is not for your condemnation, it's for your health. It's for your, it's for your, your, your good, your flourishing. So by taking a moment, say, am I practicing this properly? 
it's not to condemn yourself. It's actually to be able to get right so that you can come in and enjoy all the goodness and beauty and joy that he has for you when we celebrate this. So, in summary, in summary, this, this is a reaffirmation that the Lord's Supper or communion is for believers who understand what is being said and proclaimed in the communion elements and what we are doing, and that we are doing it with proper consideration for our brothers and sisters here. So there's a place, yes, for confession of sins and repentance of things that come to mind, but, but I want to be very clear. When Paul's words here are not primarily speaking of some kind of like total self-purification that has to take place before you come to the table. Sometimes we get that idea. You examine yourself. If there's any sin that I haven't confessed or something or that I'm not aware of, like the Lord's going to strike me dead when I come to the table or something, and that's not the heart of this. Communion is meant to be like for sin- people who are sinners, know they are saved by the grace of God, who come to the table boldly and celebratorily, think, like saying, yes, Lord, I have received your body and your blood spilled for me. Thank you. Yes, I choose to be nourished by these things spiritually in the deepest sense. So this isn't like, you know, I don't, the point is not that you're just like fretting over everything you've ever done every time you come to communion. And yet, if there's a sense in which you've got some kind of neighbor issue going on, I think he's saying resolve that. Resolve that first. And yes, there are times when we need to You know, there's a particular sin that's burdening us that we should confess. That's all appropriate, of course, but but I hope you catch the spirit of this. I think, as is just a quick sidebar on that, very practically, I've already mentioned that 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 is why communion is for believers. Um, But I also want to speak specifically about children in our in our midst as well. I have two children that come here and that occasionally are up here when we're doing communion, and you know. The New Testament actually gives very little hard and fast, like, teaching about this. So I think there's a lot of grace. This is the most detailed teaching on communion in the entire New Testament, this passage. Um, But I do think that communion, if it's for believers, that's instructive for how we kind of guide our children in relationship to this. Um, If our children haven't made, you know, a credible profession of faith, then it's something that we can explain to them and use that as an evangelistic moment. Like, hey, buddy, this is... This, is, this will be for you when you've trusted Jesus. Like, well, I'm so excited for you to be able to take this with me one day. But right now, you know, I know you're still working through it or whatever. And I know there's sensitivity there, and all of us as parents are dealing with the like, okay, my kid grew up in a Christian home, and I, like, they, they say they believe, but how much do they really understand? And, you know, hey, I'd be happy to chat with you and walk with you through that. Um, but I think it's just the, the, the basic thing is like this is meant to be an invitation to people who do not know the Lord to come to the Lord and participate in it. And if those who haven't quite grasped that yet or whatever, uh, it's not for them yet. And I think hopefully we do this with a tone and a spirit that's like, hey, like this isn't like shame at all. This is just normal and happy and exciting and invitational. Um, but could be, a, I mean, often is a very, very powerful evangelistic tool when we consider it that way. Um, so there's disagreement about that. Um, and we've never been the kind of church that overtly, like, polices the communion table. But I think taking the spirit of Paul's, Paul's words here, that seems to be a reasonable conclusion. So, sidebar over. Our liturgies, then, they are helpful to the extent that they remind us and connect us with God 
his truth, and his presence in ways that don't violate our commands to love him and others. So we engage these practices rightly to the extent we do so for that purpose, in that spirit. So, all that said, give just a quick examination of our liturgies as a community, because we have them. Even though we're not particularly high church congregation, we have our liturgies. Uh, first, I'd mention the seven kind of spiritual disciplines that we've kind of called our community to participate in. On a daily basis, prayer and scripture. On a weekly basis, worshiping here and community. And on a monthly basis, serving, giving, and inviting. Those are seven disciplines we've said, hey, we see these clearly in the scripture, and we think a communal commitment to living these things out, in different ways, of course, um, but to living these out will be formative for us in a really, really deep and powerful way. So you could think of each of those as liturgies that we are calling our community into. But there's also the corporate liturgies that we do here, which is maybe what you think of first when you think of that word. So our worship gatherings have an order. Our services have a liturgy that's made up of many smaller liturgical elements. I like the way Mike Cosper puts it. He says, the gathering isn't simply a single spiritual discipline. It's a host of them. It's a way of taking the experiences of prayer and worship, which we so often compartmentalize and individualize, and unifying them in the life of the congregation. So you think of it that way. When you come to church, you're actually engaging in a number of spiritual disciplines together communally. So our liturgy is a set of rituals or habits that we return to again and again in hopes that we will meet with God and be shaped by him through them. And we've here just aimed to be neither a particularly high church nor irreverently low church, but hopefully embody a healthy balance. I know everyone's trying to strike the healthy balance, and so are we. Um, but the basic liturgy that we follow here at our Sunday, Sunday gatherings goes something like this, just to name it. it. I would say it basically starts at uh, 9.20 when we have our pre-service prayer. There's a group of people who come early, who gather, who seek, seek God together, we pray, we pray over this service, we pray for the spiritual health and life of our community, we pray evangelistically for our neighborhood and our city, and we, we basically give the morning to him. Say, God, this is yours. We do that every week. Then we have a time of community and connection, which oftentimes we just think of as like, you know, Cameron can't start the service on time, which sometimes I just can't. Um, <laughs> but we intentionally say like, hey, from 9.50 to 10 after, to 1010. This is just time for people. They can check their kids in as early as 950, and we have time just to be here, just to form relationship. Uh, if, I didn't have a, if I didn't work here, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> I recognize, like with young kids, it's hard. It's hard. But we just state that's our goal, is to actually have space here every morning, not just for a quick handshake or whatever, but to commune, to connect, to have conversation. And the same goes for after service as well. That's why we encourage people to stay late and just stick around as long as you can to connect. Then we, we, we have a call to worship, usually with a scriptural promise or a moment of prayer, something like that, some, some moment to orient us in what we're doing, to kind of give shape to what we're doing, to kind of clear the mind and step into worship, at least in a new way, as we're about to. We typically then have the singing of some songs, some hymns and spiritual songs, which we looked at a couple weeks ago all kinds of different songs geared to teach us truth and to be vehicles to stir up our hearts to proclaim his praise. We then stand together every week for the public reading of the Bible, 
the word of God in reverence. We then typically listen to an expository sermon aiming to explain and apply the biblical passage, hopefully to the heart. We then have a call to respond to the word of God and space to engage with him, a time of response after. We tee that up. That involves the Lord's Supper pretty much every week where believers are invited to come and to receive the elements, the body and the blood, take them into ourselves. We have a giving box that we mention almost every week where we want to self-consciously tie the act of financial generosity to this whole project of worship. We have a prayer team and a prayer room that's available for people who need just, you know, a moment of prayer with someone. But we also try to regularly encourage just a free form, like as people are moving about the room, it should be normal for us to pray with one another, to share with one another, to confess to one another, just here in the gathering. It's open on purpose. Um, We have more singing as well, more songs, and an opportunity to, in light of what we've heard in the scriptures, to proclaim those truths back to God again. And then we have announcements. <laughs> but we have them on purpose, which announcements, we, say, we try to say this, which are really invitations into the life of this community beyond Sunday morning. To say that what happens here is important, deeply important, but it is not the defining thing of our church. It is one of many. Our church is a community that lives life outside of the walls of this building, day in and day out. That's why we have announcements often towards the end of the service. We turn our attention out towards the rest of the week to be sent out together. And then we conclude often with the reciting of the Lord's Prayer together, speaking in one voice the prayer that the specific prayer that Jesus left for us to pray. We think it's pretty important to do that together. So we also have the value the practice of semi-regular baptisms as needed as people are coming to faith. Uh, if you've recently come to faith, you should get baptized. Let's talk about it. Uh, we have monthly community meals together. We can think of that as a as a liturgical practice. We have occasional prayer-focused gatherings here where we don't have a sermon at all, but we just gather around the presence of God in prayer. Um, We've been following a few beats of the traditional church calendar, the liturgical calendar, through Advent and Lent uh, and Pentecost. We have call and response times occasionally. This last Advent, we had the call and response around our Advent candle lightings. Um, Something we've it's been a year since Door of Hope has done it. I suspect we will reintegrate it in some form as the reciting of the historic creeds of the church together. Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. A declarative statement in one voice here that unites us with the church, with all Orthodox believers across the planet. So, and there are many other things as well, but that's just to, to name, like, we do this stuff, and it's on purpose. And hopefully... Like, by viewing these things, not just, ah, eh, this is kind of what our church does, but, you know, not that and also there's freedom to tweak and to change and to grow and to, we'll try new things and the, our liturgy will, will, will be shaped over time. But to say, like, that's what we're doing. And it's here because we think each of these practices is heavily featured and important in the scriptures and is an opportunity to commune with God and to regularly be shaped by him, both on the days that you come and you're like, man, I'm fired up, I'm here to worship, and on the days that you come. When you're like, man, I'm just here. I'm just here. The Lord can still do something with that. That small act of obedience. That small act of obedience. That is the power of habit, of ritual, of tradition, of liturgy, friends.
So to conclude, to conclude, listen to Tish Harrison Warren again. She says, in church on Sunday, we participate in a liturgy, a ritualized way of worship that we repeat week, each week, and by which we are transformed. Our Sunday liturgies look different from tradition to tradition. Quakers, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians worship differently, but within each tradition, there are patterns of worship, and through each gathered liturgy, congregants are formed in a way of being in the world. Even those traditions that claim to be freeform or non-liturgical include practices and patterns in worship. You kind of can't avoid it. Therefore, the question is not whether we have a liturgy. The question is, what kind of people is our liturgy forming us to be? There's nothing magic about any particular church tradition. Liturgy is never a silver bullet for sinfulness. These formal practices have no value outside of the gospel and God's own initiative and power. But God has loved us and sought us, not only as individuals, but corporately as a people over millennia. And we learn the words, practices, and rhythms of faith hewn by our brothers and sisters throughout history. As we learn these things, we learn to live our days in worship. So, Door of Hope, we do well to consider our habits, our routines, our traditions, our rituals, our liturgies. As an individual, you have them. As a gathered church, we have them. And it appears that God made us, he made us, to be able to be uniquely shaped by them. So in choosing healthy and good ones, we are entering into acts of worship. Sometimes we meet our spiritual habits with deep joy and a sense of spiritual transcendence. Other times we meet them with simple obedience, barely hanging on, trusting that God is still at work in and through them to give us more of himself. Jesus is good, friends. He is full of grace. He is the means by which we are saved. He is our only hope for salvation. It is by his blood spilled that he has bought us salvation, forgiveness of sins, entrance into his family, and an eternal hope that can never be taken from us. And if that is true, then may we be a people of habit who come to him regularly, even on days we don't feel like it, seeking him with whatever we have. Amen? May we be a people who learn to worship through liturgy. Let's pray.